Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Good morning, afternoon, and evening, my friends. This is Chris, your co-pilot on this particular audio escapade. This is the Run, Run, Live podcast, episode 4-324. And today we've got an interview with Josh, who has gone through a bit of a hero's journey. He's worked through some personal challenges and come back with the help of some friends to qualify for Boston, and he's going to talk all about that. And the other interesting thing is that I don't do the interview. We got one of our friends of the show, Alex, to do the interviewing, and Alex is one of the folks who edits the interviews for me. And just because he's a friend of the show, uh, don't I don't pay him. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got to catch on though. Don't uh, don't spread it around. Today the uh, the tables are turned though, and I have to edit his interview. So I think he's getting back at me. In section one, I'm going to give you a piece on how to come back from a big injury, something I'm I'm very familiar with. And in section two. I'm going to talk about trying to fix my obsession with the scarcity of time. My training is going really well. I got through my first three-week cycle of my Marathon BQ training plan, and I'm finding I, I, I don't have the willpower or fitness yet to do the speed work at full 1,600 meters, so I've been doing 800s for the speed work, but 1,600s for the tempo. My my speed and strength are coming back really nicely, though. I did a long run last weekend of 15 miles, and I felt fine the whole way through. And I even felt strong enough at the end to kick it in, which never would have happened this time last year. So I've been doing a lot of my speed work on the treadmill at work, which has its pros and cons. It's super convenient, and you can make the workout very structured on the very exact on the treadmill. On the other hand, I'm always concerned about the real-to-life equivalency, and I don't just mean the effort levels are different. I mean there's a certain specificity to being outside in the elements when you're doing this work that's beneficial, but I think it's still good enough. I've got a long way to go, and but I'm not struggling like I was with my heart um, last year when it was all wonky and I was trying to train. I'm very hopeful. Uh, I haven't scheduled any goal races yet, but I have my eye on a few. 
The next scheduled race for me is the Air Fire Department 5K on American Thanksgiving morning. And this will be a good test of how much I've managed to move my race pace set point with this speed work. And I'll treat it as a tempo workout. I'll go over and run the course before, right? Just go run three or four miles to warm up. And then I'll race the race itself hard to see what pace I can hold. And it'll be a good indicator, good indicator of my fitness. I'm eyeballing a half marathon in Atlanta on December 13th, which would work well as another uh, another data point, good marathon pace run. So you just, you know, you have to trust your training plan, but it can be helpful and useful to pick up some directional data points along the way with races. You just don't, don't you know, you don't want to go, over, go overboard with racing while you're training. And I have the Groton Marathon, of course, on December 27th, which is this self-supported 26.2-mile run that myself and some buddies from my running club put on each year. And if I treat that as a last long run, that points to a qualifying try somewhere around January 10th if I stay healthy. And if I screw the pooch on that one, I could regroup and try again in February. And I don't have a number for Boston yet, but, you know, these ha- these things have a way of working out for me. So in the spring, my company upgraded me to the iPhone 6, which was nice. But I kept dropping it and breaking it because it was much less uh, less rugged than the iPhone 5. So they made me buy a better case, and I bought a LifeLock case. And if you've ever seen these LifeLock cases, they're quite bulky. It reminds me of something that the Soviets would have designed. But supposedly, it's like 100% waterproof. And it has kept me from breaking the phone again. But one challenge is that the hole for the headphones is now rather deep and has a screw-in feature that makes it impossible to use most headphones, especially the Bose headphones that I run with and the big noise-canceling headphones that I use when I'm working around the yard. So as a result, I had to either not listen to my music on my phone and my podcast while I was doing stuff, which kills me because I love the double task, or I'd have to take it out of the case, which totally defeats the purpose having a case in the first place. So bear with me. But fear not. There's a cable adapter that's about four inches long, and you screw it in, you screw the tip in, and then theoretically... All your headphones work, and you can buy this on the internet, except you can't buy it in any of the stores I went to. They all say the same thing to me. You can buy that on the internet for a dollar, which is not very helpful. So I went online to Amazon, and I was a bit flummoxed to find that, yes, indeed, it was $0.97, this adapter, but it was going to cost me $10 to get it shipped to me. I ordered it anyhow, and this was in the beginning of August or even the end of July, and after a few weeks... It hadn't shown up, so I checked the order status, and it appeared to make it as far as a distribution center in Worcester. Steve, that's for you, Worcester. And then it disappeared. So I sent an email to the company to tell them that, hey, you know, I'm looking at this online, and I never got it. And they agreed with me, but nothing else happened. It's nice to be agreed with, but I still needed a cable adapter. We're going on more than a month now, so I ordered another one. And just this past week, I got it. It's really quite useful because not only can I listen to punk rock while I'm doing speed work, which is quite helpful, but I can run in like the pouring rain with this thing. It's waterproof. Like seriously, like throw it in the toilet and let it sink to the bottom waterproof. 
there's no moral or life lesson here for you guys. It's just a story. I'm just happy that it appears I finally found a piece of audio technology that I can't kill with my toxic Chris juices. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Coming back from a big injury. It's it's really all mental. I got a lot of good questions this week, but really, I really like this one because there's so much emotion wrapped around it. I've been there myself. I know the pain and the heartbreak of having to start from the bottom and work your way back up. I've done it several times. What are we talking about? We're talking about that injury that takes you out for six weeks or two years. We're talking about that injury that is significant enough to stop you in your tracks. You're forced to stop running. Maybe it's a stress fracture. Maybe it's a torn Achilles. Maybe it's a surgery or a sickness. Maybe it's a car accident. Whatever it is, it knocks you right out of your running routine and back onto the couch. And frankly, we are our own worst enemies. We don't know when to stop. We keep pushing the limits until it's too late and we're forced off our feet. We also tend to be super injury paranoid as runners, right? Who hasn't gotten a sharp pain somewhere after a run and thought, maybe this is it, I'll never run again. Yeah, yeah, sure, we're drama queens. It's only because we've invested so much of ourselves in becoming the endurance athletes we are, whether it be the Boston Qualifier or the 5K Specialists. We've created a sense of self-worth that we've wrapped around our ability to run. Well, partner, that's just silly. You are doing it to yourself. Let's settle one thing right now. Your self-worth has nothing to do with your ability to lace up your ASICs and trot around the neighborhood. You are you, independent of any physical activity or endowment, and you will always be you. Stop tying your self-worth to your endurance sport. Get right with yourself. This is not who you are. This is a thing that you do. If you could never do it again, you would be okay. It would suck, but you would find the inner strength to do something just as valid. Because that's the same inner strength that led you to this pursuit and this ability to begin with. Are we straight now? The worst thing that can happen is not that bad and is no reflection on you as a person. Get that right in your head. Running is a gift. Running is a privilege. It's not a right. So get over yourself. What makes this situation seem outsized is that these injuries typically occur when we are at the peak of our game. We are in the final weeks of a training cycle. We are setting PRs, knocking out miles with ease. We are on top. And we are in denial that we have to let that go and reset back to the beginning. It's the grieving cycle. You have to get through it. First is denial, then there is anger, then there is sadness. But my friends, eventually, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it is acceptance. There's nothing wrong with going through the grieving cycle when you get knocked out of running. It's healthy. Just realize it for what it is and don't get stuck. Once you've accepted that you're going to have to take some time off, You can mitigate the trough. Mentally, I tell people to think of injury timeouts as a gathering of strength. 
When you come back, you will be stronger. And this focuses you on the long-term horizon and gets your mind off that 10K you were supposed to run on Sunday before you tore your meniscus. Transition to cross-training. Quickly get into a routine with whatever you can do. Weightlifting, swimming, aqua jogging, yoga. It doesn't matter. This activity will fill the void and keep the positive momentum. If you can only meditate, then do that. This is the methadone to your running addiction. This will ease the hard landing and the withdrawal. When the time comes and the injury is healed, enough for you to take to the roads again, ease into it and have the right mindset. The wrong mindset is to think, oh God, I hate the fact that I can only run a quarter mile without wheezing and I've gained 30 pounds. That's wrong. That's just going to send you back into the sadness cave. Remember what I said. Running is a gift. It's a privilege. And that's how you approach your re-entry into the sport. You leave the watch at home. You take your dog. You find a beautiful forest trail somewhere. And when you have to stop after a quarter mile to wheeze, you smile. And you think, this is great. I'm running again. The rest will come. It will come back. I've come back from tearing both Achilles to requalify for Boston. I've come back from crashing my truck and crushing my patella to requalify for Boston. I've come back from evulsing my ankle, yeah, and there were zombies chasing me, to qualify for Boston. And I'm currently coming back from plantar fasciitis and a heart procedure, and I will requalify for Boston. Or I won't. It doesn't matter. I was on the treadmill this week, knocking out a set of 800s. And I was running this speed work at a pace that used to be my five-mile race pace. But I was smiling because I was running. I was doing speed work. My body was working and the sweat was flying. It's not what you've done. You can't compare yourself to that runner you were before you got injured. You enjoy what you get. You live in the moment. You celebrate every shuffle and jog in your recovery. Each time I come back, it's with no expectations. It starts with my dog in the woods, one joyous mile at a time, in the winter snows, in the spring slush, in the summer sweat and the crunch of fall leaves, season after season. It starts with the joyous feeling of gratitude for just being able to take that first step. Whatever happens after that is gravy. And that's how you come back from an injury. And now for today's featured interview. So Josh, hi. Thanks for joining us. Give us a ton of words on, on who you are and what you do. All right. Um, I'm Josh Butler. I'm, I'm your average 40-year-old. I have a wife and three young daughters and a, a very time-demanding and travel-heavy career as a manager and research scientist. Uh, I'm on the show to talk about my journey and how I use running as a means to overcome a major back injury and a decade of chronic pain to ultimately become a Boston qualifier. I've done this with the help of a dedicated, very dedicated medical professional and the inspiration and knowledge from the Run, Run, Live podcast and Chris Russell's Marathon DQ plan. Have you always been a runner? I ran when I was young. Um, I ran cross-country and track in high school. It was primarily as a means to stay in shape for wrestling. So after, after high school, I joined the Army. And I, and I ran in the Army primarily as prescribed training rather than for fun. I guess I really shouldn't say it wasn't fun. Basic training is really the only time in my life I ever got paid to work out and get fit. But, yeah, so I ran through the Army. 
really I came out of the army in really excellent physical physical condition just from all the other training, and then I started my undergraduate working on my undergraduate degree. Uh, during that time, I found more interesting things to do with my time. You know, I, I had my studies, of course, and then all the other fun associated with college that you have to take advantage of when you're when you're there. Uh, my youth allowed me to still really look fit regardless of my lifestyle, but I really wasn't wasn't in great shape. I'd get an occasional run-in here and there. I still really enjoyed doing it. It just wasn't a priority. Did you, did you come out the other side, you know, still keen on running? Or? Yeah, so, you know, I was kind of on and off running. Um, when I got into graduate school, I really, really got into my studies. and It was really very time-consuming there, and, and it kind of caught up with me. The, the lack of exercise kind of caught up with me, and I was about... Uh, two years into my master's degree, and I was working in a in, um, genetics lab, and someone had asked me to help pick up a container of water, and I bent over and picked it up and felt the shock down my leg and knew something wasn't quite right. So the next day, I couldn't get my socks on. I couldn't get down and get my shoes on. I knew there was something seriously wrong. I, I went to the doctor. Um, they tried to do some muscle relaxers and so on to see if they could just break up a muscle spasm, and it didn't go away for several weeks. So they eventually did an MRI and discovered I had herniated a disc in my L5-S1, resting on the nerve that goes down to your leg. So it was causing uh, a lot of pressure pain in my back and, and some pretty debilita- debilitating pain in my leg. Ow. Yeah, it was, it was, really, yeah, it was really a bummer. That sounds, that sounds pretty rough. So I guess the last thing you were, you were thinking about, let alone able to do, was run right then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's and, – and the whole thing about it is I was about 27 years old when this happened. And, and when you're young, you really feel invincible. You know, yeah. when I was younger and you do injure yourself, you, everything's going to heal, right? And this was an injury that my doctor – I remember the day the doctor, the doctor told me this, this probably is not going to heal. We just need to work on managing it. Whatever I mean, the was, suggestion was, it was never going to heal. More or less. I mean, that once that's herniated, that doesn't generally go back in. They'll do uh, cortisone injections and so on and try to get it to reduce the inflammation to get it off the nerve, but it doesn't ever heal. There's just not enough blood supply in the disc for it to heal. All right. So we so we went through a, a conservative approach. Um, you know, I, I was still I was still uh, young and stubborn and cocky, thinking that I was going to be the exception and I would heal. So, you know, I really followed everything the doctor said and said, okay, I'm going to do everything he says. I'm going to get better and, and beat the odds on this one and, and and get better and be back to 100% just like I was before the injury. Uh, unfortunately, that never never really happened. I went on with a conservative treatment for a couple of years. Uh, I got to the point where I was starting to get some nerve damage in my leg or I was losing some feeling in my leg. And they, they said they had to do something about it or it would continue to damage that nerve and I could use some functionality in my leg. They recommended a fusion um, early on. So it's basically where they fuse the two vertebrae together. And reading on about that and talking to some people, um, I was kind of shying away from that just because it puts a lot more pressure on your discs above when you get a fusion. And there was this uh, newer thing coming out. It was called disc replacement where they basically go in through your abdomen um, and they take out the old disc, that's the cushiony part between the vertebrae, and they insert some titanium hardware in there, but it still maintains flexibility. So there's still like this plastic disc in there, so you still have the flexibility in the movement that you would without it. Uh, eventually that titanium piece fuses to each of the vertebrae above and below, and then you have that disc floating in there. Uh, it doesn't have the same cushion as your original disc, but you still maintain the same, same mobility. Cool. There's some titanium in your back right now. Yes, my X-ray looks very interesting. It's, it looks like yeah, a, like a Terminator movie or something. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so how was that successful? I mean, did it, was it you know remove the pain? Were you able to, yeah. to move on it again? 
Immediately, yes. It was it was excellent. Um, I remember coming out of surgery, and it was in a lot of pain because they go through your abdomen, but um, I mean, I was up and walking within within hours of waking up. They had me doing laps around and, and my house, you know, a hospital room, and then around in the hallway. And uh, within three months, they gave me the go ahead to start exercising, and it was it was excellent. I'm like, this is this is great. I mean, it's I recovered quickly, and they said a lot more quickly probably because I was younger than the average person that gets this kind of injury. So I was up and running in about three months. So yeah, yeah, all seemed pretty good at that point. And of course. Uh, I pushed a little too hard, a little too quick, I think, and, and ended up back where I started. Um, I didn't have as much of the leg pain, but I started to get a lot of a lot of pain uh, in my back again. And it was this just like, generally, or was this through running? Uh, it was it was in general. I don't I don't know that right. the running caused it. I don't I didn't really get up to a big enough base to do it. But I, I was also working on a house remodel at the same time. I mean, it was like all these things that aggravated. I I didn't take it as easy as I probably should have. Um, but you know, I was I was trying to run, and I was running on a on a semi-regular basis at that time. I still hadn't got it built into like a habit at that point. Uh, it was just more of a thing. I got out to get some exercise, to reduce stress yeah. uh, between studying and so uh, on. I guess if you if you if you get in a bit of pain, then and it's not something actually you're doing a lot of. It's one of the first things that you'll stop doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that, and that's they really tell you that the compression, the doctors, that and they tell you how it's bad it is for your knees. I've heard that a million times, but which I've right. never had a knee problem. <laughs> no, <laughs> but you probably yeah. have. You just don't feel it because the back's so painful. <laughs> yeah, that could be. That could be. Yeah. So I mean, it, at first it, it kind of crept up, and it just kind of slowly got worse and worse and worse. And I got it caught in this in this cycle where you you can't exercise because you're in pain, but you almost need to exercise to get out of pain. So it, it just creates a cycle where I just started getting weight, and I think the gaining weight didn't help the pain. And so on. So I just got into the cycle where it got worse and worse and worse. And prior to the surgery, I'd gotten by without ever. I absolutely refused to take any um, narcotic painkillers. I just didn't want to yeah. even try that. I just Tylenol and ibuprofen, and I was okay. Um, I got to the point after the surgery that that I needed to do something. I just I was not functioning. I couldn't focus. I couldn't sleep. You know, they did MRIs just to make sure nothing was broken in the disc or anything like that, or if I didn't have any other pathology in the other discs. Uh, they determined that that was okay, so it was basically just uh, it was just something I was going to have to live with. So they referred me to a pain management uh, physician. And if you ever get sent to a pain management physician, they're going to give you a, a lot of medication, and that's really how they how right. they manage pain is they give you medication, and it, and it starts out with a small amount, and that does help manage the pain. Kind of it kind of deadens you to the world. I don't know that you don't feel the pain, you just don't really care about it anymore. Um, right. And, but the, the the thing with pain medications is they have diminishing effect as time goes on. So you have to do uh, take more and more and more and, and more. more. And, mm. Yeah, and over time that creeps up to a point that you're like you're you're on a dose that that is dangerous, would be deadly for someone else for a normal person. Uh, wow. and, and you're you're just a different person. It 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 takes away your core being. It just you're yeah, you're very the middle. The thing about this, this this story, Josh, is that you know twice there you've had people giving up on you. You know, yeah. right at the very start, doctor suggesting, you know what, you might never get over this and, you know, you might not be able to run again. And then, you know, here, after the surgery, uh, well, don't think we can ever really, you know, make this pain go away, so we're going to manage it instead. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that kind of helped your, your mental mood, right? That must have, oh, must not have been at pretty, all. Yeah. Pretty, pretty awful. Yeah, yeah, and, and it really leads into this depression anxiety thing because I'm, I'm young at this point and, 
And I'm thinking, well, what's the rest of my life going to be like? I'm going to be on these pain medications for the rest of my life. Um, yeah. you know, and it's continuing to climb. The amounts are climbing and climbing and, and they're becoming less and less effective. And, you know, the next thing is they can insert electrodes in there to create stimulation to try to reduce pain. It just it got more and more complicated and, and more and more far away from where I wanted my life to be. Uh, yes, yeah, so I really fell into to a funk. I was I would say I was depressed yeah, for some funk. time. So um, and, and, you know, it's, it's ironic in a way because you know a lot of people use running as a way of you know, dealing with you know depression and anxiety and and dependence and stuff. But I guess you couldn't really do that, could you? No, no. And and, and I tried doing some other things. I did try swimming a little bit. Um, I tried getting on the bike. I just any anything for any period of time was painful. So if I would sit for too long, if I'd stand for too long, if I'd swim for too long, so I couldn't do anything for more than five or 10 minutes, you know, without changing position. So it was, and I didn't really have any support to do that. I went to the, I went to physical therapy at that point and, and tried to find some help there. And they did some rubber bands and did a few um, things with stretches and stuff and said, I need to strengthen yeah. my glutes and so on. And I did try some of that. It just wasn't, it wasn't that breakthrough and it wasn't, I didn't get any hope from anyone, and I, and I don't blame the medical professionals. I I think they're they're busy, and you know you got to really go in there and you got to want it. You can't expect them to do everything. You know, it's got to show them that you really want to get better, and and then you have to have the right person that that will grasp onto that and help you get there. So what happens? Say, so, I mean, the, the the start here, you you know, this is a joyous story. You you you've ended up as a Boston qualifier. So how the heck did you break this cycle? 2012. So I, I, this, I was dealing with this. The surgery was in 2005, and this went on until 2012. Um, so it was a good chunk of time. I hurt my back in, in, I think it was 2003. So I'm looking yeah, at almost a decade here already of of messing around. I I really gained a lot of weight. I gained up for, almost 40 to 50 pounds on an offside. Gained a bunch of weight. I started a new job. Uh, moved moved back to where I went to from graduate school, actually, and, and I started a new job, and uh, I was talking to a co-worker, and he had suffered with back pain and recovered from it, and it sounded like he had some similar things. He didn't have a surgery, but he had some disc issues, and he had credit to this physical therapist that he saw with, with helping him out. And having not had a lot of luck, I was a little reluctant to go to a physical therapist again, but he really spoke highly of her, so, so I went in and, and, and saw her, and, and right away, right away there was a, a noticeable difference. I mean, some people just have have uh, that in their blood, that, that healing touch in their blood, and they have that personality that wants to help people. And you could tell right away she was that kind of person. And the first thing she asked me is what my goals were. And I told her I wanted to be able to exercise and specifically run. You know, and to my surprise, she she said she'd get me there. And, and it, was, it was a very long road to get there, but she did get me there. We started out with just some real basic strengthening. So it wasn't like I could just go see her and start running immediately. This was about a two-year process. Uh, to get to the point that I was I was strong enough overall to run without re re injuring my back. Um, so it was really a multifaceted approach, including a lot of strengthening. Um, there's right. something called trigger point dry needling. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's yeah, it's no, I had it. I had it for um, tennis elbow. You know? Yeah, it's outstanding. I mean, um, it's, so, I, so I had that. Um, well, I, I had trigger point on um, problems I have in my neck at one time, and then uh, and I had the the old needles on the arm. Interestingly, um, the thing that sorted out the neck problem was when I started running, which was about five years ago for me. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. with tennis elbow, actually, the needling was pretty effective. Uh, it took yeah. a few sessions, but it, it, uh, I don't know, it kind of releases the muscle spasms in there, I think, and gets some blood flowing in there and, and, and helps fix things up. 
Yeah, for me, I was real reluctant. I'm like, oh, this is like acupuncture, and then, you know, right, yeah, or the Eastern medicine kind of thing. I didn't believe in it, but it really, for me, it was extremely effective. I mean, that was strengthening, and then, um, and then she she also taught a yoga class for her patients, so she knew each of the patients that were in there, what their injuries were, and how to uh, coach them through different movements to make sure they didn't injure themselves with yoga, which was outstanding. I mean, if I went to a, a normal yoga class, I probably would have hurt myself again. But having her as a the yoga instructor was really useful to uh, to get me to a point that I was I was my, strong overall. It wasn't just working on just the back muscles; it worked on everything, worked on flexibility and so on. So over these two years, it got to a point that that I, I felt pretty good. I mean, I was finding I was needing um, less medication throughout this point. You know, as you get a little more active and so on, it seems like you get more of your natural endorphins. Uh, helping you with some of that, and then I think yeah. my attitude my attitude improved. I just saw I saw some hope um, for the first time in a long time. You were running again? Yeah, after after it was about two years, and she kind of said, you know, it's okay if you want to start running. She said, just start out slow, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's it's easy to tell a runner to start out slow and for them to listen, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So well, my first one was it was it was pretty disappointing. I I, I have a a point point eight mile lap around my block. And, and I struggled to make it all the way around in a run, which was crazy because when I was younger, you know, I ran cross country and track, and, and they, a one mile run or even a 5K was nothing. You know, that was not a big deal. So, I, guess I understand. I mean, for different reasons. But when I when I started running five years ago, actually it was about the same. I think it was 800 meters I managed on a treadmill in a in a hotel in Parsippany. Uh, my challenge was I've been smoking for 16 years. You know, that's why I couldn't make it past past 800 meters, but I know what it's like. And it was a real shock to me, actually. I thought, because I was, I was very active when I was a kid as well. So to suddenly realize, actually, I can't do this was a real shock. But yeah. you know what? I, you, you, can, you can build from that, can't you? And I imagine that's what you did. You start slow, and then you, you build on, and you, you do a bit more each day, right? Absolutely. And, and that's, again, we're having, having that, that first coach there, that, that my physical therapist, um, kind of helped me along, you know, continuing to cheer me on and keep, stay enthusiastic and, and keep me going. It's really kept me, it kept me going. Uh, in a couple of, it really only took a couple of months to build it up. It happened really a lot quicker than I would have thought. You know, after, I think it was about three months, I was able to run, you know, six miles at an eight, eight minute to 8.30 pace, which, Looking at it now, it's like I was slower, but you know that was pretty good coming from a point eight mile, uh, not even being able to run the whole way. It was a big improvement. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so at that point, I, I started uh, doing some five Ks again. I'm just trying to get back to where I was when I was young. You know, doing some of those five Ks, um, and, I, and I didn't I didn't do too bad. You know, I was, I was running in the in the twenties. Uh, 20 minutes for 5Ks. Um, so I was feeling pretty good. Like I was starting to get some of my fitness back. My back was doing well. I just felt better all around. I'm, and as I'm doing this, I mean, the medications, I'm going doing less and less and less and less all the time. Uh, and and I, I can't say the pain completely went away. I just think it, it's, you just learn how to manage it. It's like, I think running, there is some pain in running and you have to deal with it in running. You kind of embrace it in running, expect it. I was say, there's, there's, there's always some pain in running, right? Just, yeah, yeah. Um, this, this, doing different extremes, and I guess you, you, you had, you know, a particular extreme. But, but it sounds like the, uh, you know, you, you kind of introduced some natural pain management there that that overtook from the from the narcotics, which is fantastic. Yeah, 
You know, I think it was. I, I think I read it was in Scott Jurek's book. He said, you know, not all pain is significant. I don't recall if he said that or if he was quoting someone else. But that's right. another thing too. Is like you know, there's different kinds of pain. You know when something's wrong, and I'm not telling anyone they should run through pain if you're gonna get an injury right. from it. But there's there's always some pain when you're pushing yourself. You're pushing the limits. So you got to know where that balance is. And I think with running, I learned that, and I realized that you know my back pain. Yes, it was there. It wasn't significant. I wasn't injuring anything further. You know, I had had MRIs to say, no, you're not going to hurt anything worse by doing this. So, I mean, I was comfortable dealing with that. I could manage that. But it sounds it sounds like this 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 physio was a bit of a bit of a mentor really, and and gave you some some mental strength to to deal with you know your your pain as well as the the physical strength. You know, gave you some motivation and and support. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's I, I would argue that I, I have the, the best physical therapist in the world. It's the true dedication to to her patients. Um, just yeah. it's just amazing. Like n- no physical therapist ever received before. Well, that's epic. So, so you did the five k, ten k next, I guess. No, I didn't. Didn't even. <laughs> I skipped. I guess I jumped in with both feet and signed up for a half marathon. That was November 2014. This was early enough that I had some time to train. So. Um, I found a training plan online. I don't even recall which one it was. And maybe it was a Hal Higdon uh, beginner one or something like that. And just kind of right. build up your mileage over time, which was the first time I ever used a training plan. You know, I had coaches in cross country and track, but just did what they said. Um, it was it was kind of interesting to say, oh, there's actual plans to make sure you don't hurt yourself. Oh, that one, great. I I really didn't know how to how to plan my pace, so I I went in with the idea I wanted to I wanted to hit a 135 somewhere in that ballpark. And of course, you wow. get there, and the adrenaline gets going, and I went out way too fast. And you know, you can. <laughs> what it, I know Chris mentions the strategy sometimes that the strategy of going out like hell and trying to hold on, and that's pretty much what I did. Yeah. Yeah, and I ended did up. You managed one, to hold on. I did. I one twenty nine twenty two. I really. I was. Yeah. Whoa. Way better than I was expecting. You know, and this that's is. Epic. Yeah, this is less than a year. You know, going from being this overweight, pain med dependent, depressed. Anxiety-ridden slug to a one twenty-nine half marathoner. I mean, it was a for me. It was a big moment. I was, I was, yeah, I was proud. I mean, it was, it was great to have made such progress in such a short amount of time. Well, and the great thing is, you know, that that ninety-minute ninety-minute half marathon is just such a uh, such a barrier for people, right? And you've just gone out and nailed it in your first run. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's, it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a glass ceiling in some respect. You know, people struggle to get through that one. So that was that was awesome. So then you, uh, I, I guess that that was the point. You know, that you set your sights on Boston, right? Yeah, it was. It's like you know, I, I thought to myself, if I can do this, what's the next step? Um, and it's like, okay, I want to do a marathon. And it's like, well, I don't just want to do a marathon. I want to qualify for Boston. You know, that's that. I mean, I had watched that. I've watched Boston races on TV when I was younger, and I remember thinking that these were people with superhuman powers. And doing this half got me to the point that I thought, okay, you know, I can do this. It's just a, it's just building blocks to get there. I need to break it into small chunks and break it down and do what I need to do each step along the way to get to the bigger goal. So I, I knew I could do this just based on what I had done with the half and what I had been done to overcome the back, the back issues. There's a bit more training. There's a lot more to, to fit into a marathon schedule, just the, just the additional mileage. Yeah, there, there's definitely more mileage. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, man. When I'm running, I love it. It's just that you feel alive, and it's you know, um, you know, Chris on the podcast a lot of times talks about the Keystone habits, and I, I can see why running is one, just because it's it gives you that time to to work out your thoughts and work out your issues, and I, I just everything else starts falling into place. 
when you're, when you're running. So yeah. the, for me, the long runs, I love the long runs. They're great. I mean, it's just I can go out in a horrible mood or had had a horrible day, and <laughs> by the time I get back, I feel feel like a million bucks. So so the training it's good relaxation and it's good endorphins. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. My and my sleeping. I mean, when I was with the whole back thing, sleeping had always been a problem for me, and and I can sleep now. <laughs> I'm usually pretty. So what was your what was what was your what was your first marathon? What was the one you were trying to qualify at? Uh, the first one was the Colorado Marathon. So it had some altitude. I believe it started at 7,000 feet, and it was a downhill uh, the first half, um, and it ended at 5,000 feet. So it was a pretty significant uh, elevation drop, and right. I didn't train for downhills enough um, is, is what I've concluded. Um, I did a, a different training plan, and it was um, it involved some speed work and tempo runs and stuff like that. And and I have three daughters. They're ages one, two, and nine. A wife that works full time, and I travel a lot for work. So trying to do, yeah. trying to train for this marathon was tough. As all my runs are at night with a headlamp, in the dark. Right. So I'm, I mean, there's some complications there. So I really, and then traveling too. You have a hard time if you're in India to go do a long run or or do your um, your interval workout if they don't have a treadmill and you don't know where you are and you don't know where the track is. So there was. Uh, right. Some complications there. So I, I did have some complications completing all the workouts. Um, I would say I got about 90% of the workouts. I did, I did have a trip to India, and I got sick, so I missed uh, about a week um, just from some some reaction to some of the food. Yeah, I, I know that feeling. I also know the challenges. of. I mean, I travel to India reasonably often, and um, you know what? More more often than not, I end up on the on the treadmill just because you know, it's just too dangerous or, or the air is a bit too polluted to go outside. And um, I think I think my record is something like just over two hours on a treadmill. Yeah. Um, I just put a movie on the iPad, stick it up on the on the treadmill there, and just, yeah. just keep on running. But those gyms are so hot out there, you know, it's just kind of like 25 you know, Celsius. What's that in I don't know, in the 90s? And you lose so much water on those treadmills. It's uh, it's a bit of a state. But yeah, that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. Um, but but you made it. You made it through the program. You got to your first marathon. How'd it go? Oh yeah, not not as well as I'd, I'd hoped. Um... Yeah, the first 16 miles felt great. Uh, I, was, I was trying to qualify for Boston, so shooting for a 315, or 3.15 uh, for my age group uh, overall. Um, I felt so great in the first miles. I was running 7.05 miles, and that was stupid, even with the downhill. And by uh, mile 16, I started to really hit a wall. In 16 through 21, I was able to hold my pace at 7.26 to 7.30. When I got towards uh, I think it was about mile 21. I started seizing up. My arms seized up. My legs seized up. Um, I just cramped everywhere. I think I, I went out way Ow. too hard, and and I don't think I was robust enough for my for my training. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I did the robo. I did finish. I did the RoboCop cop death shuffle <laughs> to the finish and finished at 3:44. So I was quite a bit off for how I wanted to end up. I mean, I was still proud. What was, I mean, what was the BQ you were after? 3:15. So I was almost a half hour. Okay, yeah, so that was, yeah. that was a bit way outside. That yeah. must have been pretty disappointing, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, my, my wife, you know, it tries to always keep me positive. She said, You're, you just turned 40 and you ran a marathon. She's like, you gotta be, yeah. you got to be proud. So, I, you know, I did take some, some pride in that, but I was, I was crushed. I wanted to go out and I wanted to do it the first time. I, I really wanted to do it. But to I be honest, like I, I mean, that, you know, from your, your half time suggests that you should have been able to hit 315. So yeah. um, that, that, that must have been a disappointment. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I really think it was it was I, I needed more training, is what I, I think it right. came down to. I just didn't it, I didn't push hard enough on the, the the speed workouts and on the tempo runs, um, and my my long runs. You know the the training plan. I think the longest long run was a twenty miler, and there was only one of those. 
And, you know, I always read that you shouldn't run more than 20 miles on a training run. I, I disagree with that now, and I'll go into that in a little bit. But, yeah, I just don't think it was enough. I didn't know what the wall felt like. I didn't know how to push through the wall. I didn't know about Enduralites or salt tabs, which I think is another part of the cramping. There was just a lot of things I didn't know. I didn't I hadn't yeah. done a lot of research on, on things. After this, I wouldn't call it a failure, but after failing to meet what I wanted to meet at this marathon, is I, I did. That's when I started doing research. Uh, so I got online and started looking up uh, different marathon training plans, different books, started reading some more books on training. I discovered podcasts. I know I'm well behind uh, everyone else on this. I don't know why it took me so long. I never understood what the appeal was before. I guess I just needed to find the right one. So I subscribed to every running podcast I could find, and I listened to them right. you know, every time I was in the car. And then I found I found the Run, Run, Live podcast, and it's like it was just it clicked. I mean, it was the perfect perfect podcast. It, it it related to a lot of my life. I mean, Chris, Chris is a... a he travels for work. He's got a family. He's busy, and he still manages to do all these things. I mean, that's—I I felt like it was—it was made for me. I always to tell people it's like having Master Yoda in my ear. You know, if I'm listening to yeah. it on my headphones, it's just, it just was so informative and motivational, uh, not only for running but for everything in my life. You know, um, I work in management, so I deal with people uh, and change and things like that at work too. And I, I like those segments in that as well. And it really kind of. It kind of ties it all together, you know, how, how everything's so interrelated. Again, going back to the keystone habits, I think that endurance sports really really play a role in that, just bringing everything together. I completely can identify with that. I mean, for, for me, you know, I, I also – I had a bet with somebody, actually. Somebody bet me that I wouldn't be able to run the, the Boston Marathon in my 40th year. Um, this is probably, I don't know, 18 months after I started running. And one of the first things I did was started Google, you know, Googling you know, podcasts around Boston Marathon. And uh, when my lip popped up and, you know, I had the same kind of, of feeling, you know, I could identify very closely with a lot of the things that, um, that Chris was talking about. And, of course, you know, around that time, it, it, he was talking a lot about the Boston Marathon. So um, that kind of got me hooked in. And I, yeah, I've been listening and, uh, and, and, and supporting it ever since. So, yeah, I can really identify with that. So you start listening to the podcast and you're, you're learning a little bit more about how to prepare for, for the marathon. Um, what, what, what happened since then? So, I mean, you must have run another one, given that you qualified, right? Yep. So, yep. So, I, I, I ran the the last one was in May of this year, and then I found the podcast, and then I heard about him talking about the books. I downloaded every past episode podcast, and I listened to every one I could. So, I've, uh-huh. I think I've heard almost all of them now. So, really, I got a lot of knowledge from that. And then reading his books, um, Mid Packers Lament and. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the Packers Guide to the Galaxy. I, those are excellent. I really enjoy reading those. And the, but then the Marathon B, BQ plan was quite right. great. It was it was it was like it was custom made for for what I needed. You know, someone who travels something something simple, something that pushes you on um, the long runs. You know, really puts you outside of that comfort zone far more than just a twenty miler will. So it was. I was a little nervous. Um, you know, in the beginning of the book, he talks about. You know, this this is an aggressive plan, maybe not made for older people. And I'm at 40. I'm thinking maybe this is a little too aggressive for me. But you know, I decided I'm gonna, I'm going to go for it. I found a, I you found a marathon. Gone, I wanted... You just gone 40, Josh. You're not you're not old. <laughs> I know. But in the book, okay. in the book, he, yeah, the book he talks about being in his 30s, and maybe if you're in your 40s, you shouldn't think of. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We're so definitely we're definitely approaching the hump. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll start going back down the other side, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, that's why that's why I want to achieve a bunch of things before the downhill slide. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I, I found the the Milwaukee Lakefront Marathon um, was 
was in October, early October. I signed up for that, so I had a goal race, and I started the uh, Marathon DQ plan. I, I, I stuck to the workouts exclusively, except I did run a half marathon in the middle. I was tra- traveling for work. Right. I was in Idaho. There's a half marathon going on. I figured, what the heck. I didn't race it. I, I ran it pretty hard. I think right. I ran a 131. So I, I ran pretty pretty hard, but it was I didn't, didn't push it. super hard. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't taper. I didn't taper, and it wasn't yeah, like yeah. an A race. So it was just like just a kind of check. Just one thirty one. You know. Yeah. Just no, trying to check, awesome. check how I was doing and if things were progressing. You know, this the speed work. I really like the speed work. The simplicity of it. I, I can't say I enjoyed doing the speed work in the beginning and the tempo work. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the first ones. It's like there's no way. Looking at the plan and realizing you're gonna have to do any of these things later on, it's like there's no way I'm gonna be able to do this. But you know, you you kind of ease into it, and and yeah, it's hard. But but if you want to achieve something, you got to work a little bit for it. So it really just it kind of the building blocks again. It gets you to where you want to be, and then the long runs too. Um, I think those those longer long runs really for me were the big one of the big things. It's like I. I knew what to expect when I got to the marathon with, with the wall or when things got hard and you did that transition to fat burn. You know, your glycogen stores start to run out and you transition yeah. to fat. And I know in that first one, I, that was a, a drastic thing for me. It's just like running out of gas. And uh, and I think doing these long runs made me know how that feels and that it's okay. I can continue to run through that. And I think with the long runs, I got they got the transition was less and less abrupt each time I did a, a longer run like that. Okay. So I think it maybe trained my body a bit to, to transition. Yeah, it's a good better. plan for that. Yeah, but it's a hard plan, isn't it? I mean, it's not. You know, nothing's doesn't always go rosy, right? No, no. I mean, challenging. There, there were some times where, it was like, especially some of the speed and tempo days, where you're just getting out the door was was like pulling teeth. But I mean, once I got out there and was <laughs> doing it, it was fine. But you know, I don't know if you ever experienced that. But sometimes just getting out the door is the hardest part. Once I'm going, yeah, I, I tend to try and if, if I'm if I'm in that kind of space, I tend to try and run really early in the morning and get myself out the door before I've really woken up. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Otherwise, I wake up, I talk myself out of it. Yeah, yeah. So overall, I I hit the workouts. I think everything went well. I got into the taper. I got taper madness, like I think lots of people do, and thought, oh, I'm not prepared. I don't feel great, and you know, I didn't do enough. Um, marathon pace training and so i know even though i did faster than that in the tempo and the speed work so i was i was a little scared but i just thought you know that's everything i'd heard from the podcast and from chris is like it worked so far so i figured you know i'm gonna listen to listen to what he said and trust the training put a bit of faith in the mentor huh yeah i think you need that sometimes you need to you need to trust people that have that have been there i think that's what comes through a lot in the book for me is just the you know the raw experience of you know what i've done this and i've spoken to loads of people that have done this and these are the things that matter. Yeah, absolutely. Just going to name like you know one or two things that were were key for you in in the, the marathon BQ book and the approach, the training plan. What would they be? I really, I think, I think the the speed. I mean, I didn't done tempo run, tempo runs in the first plan, but the, I think the speed work really makes you realize you can go pretty quick and and you can build on that and you're doing more and more miles yeah. like that. It's just like a it's like a confidence booster, and it just makes you feel strong. Or yeah. for me, it did. It just, you know, over time, it's like I just felt like I felt like I got stronger, and and I think my form improved. I have a cadence sensor on my watch. You do a little foot pod, and you have a cadence sensor. And I, in my first yeah. marathon I ran, I was uh, 168. In the last marathon I, I ran, I was 188. So something happened in in that last training plan that my cadence and my turnover rate 
really sped up, and I think it's that speed work that did that. It just well, it'll be the, yeah, it'll be the the speed work improving your form, I'd imagine. Yeah. So and, and I yeah, think that that's, came uh, up. that's an improvement of form you're seeing there when your cadence picks up and your stride shortens. Yeah, and I think that I think you when you go faster, you get up on your feet a little bit more. You're not skill straight yeah, right. as much. I, you can, but I I think you tend to get up on your toes a little yeah. more on your forefoot. So I noticed on my last pair of running shoes that I had significantly less heel wear than I do in other parts of the shoe than I had in the past. No, so I, think my, I think my form has improved, which improves running economy, which makes you a better runner. Yeah. So, I mean, all around it, it's a benefit. Um, that and then those those um, long, long runs, kind of teaching me how to manage the pain. I, I don't know if it's about managing the pain. It's just knowing what it feels like. You're pushing that point, you're pushing to the wall, and you're pushing through it, and you know you can do that. It kind of gives you this confidence boost that when you get to race day, you, you know that's coming. You know, you can embrace it, and, you know, not all pain significant. And you learn what, what pain isn't significant when you do that. It's like, this, yeah. is just, this is just my brain telling me that I need this. My body still has a lot left. You know, and you, and you realize that when you do those uh, greater than 20-mile runs. I think for me, that those are the two big ones. Okay, so you got to the, to the Lakefront Marathon. It went it went outstanding. So I was a little concerned. I, again, I live in Colorado, so I traveled. My parents still live back in Wisconsin, so I went and stayed with them. I took my two-year-old daughter with me, which seemed like a great idea in the planning stages. <laughs> it was, it was uh, yeah, interesting trip. Went and stayed with my parents. We had a family gathering the day before, and I, I was it's going through taper madness, all worried that I had ruined my training by being on my feet all day the day before a marathon, and and so on. So I was doing all the normal. Uh, taper madness things and worrying about everything uh, but when I came, came to the race morning I really felt like I was ready it was it was a cool day it was in the 50s uh, Fahrenheit it was a little drizzly we had a crosswind to tailwind for most of it some of what we had to run into the wind but you know the wind was right it was overcast I mean it was a perfect day for for running a, a BQ uh, I had trained to 312 to run a 312 and all the training I did I wanted to do a 312 I didn't want to be one of the unfortunate people that, that happened to this year where they qualified, but they weren't able to register just because there were so many people that made the qualification standards. So I wanted yeah, to get right, yeah. a little bit higher. So uh, hopefully hopefully it's enough. We'll see. But I felt trained. I felt confident. You know, I had yeah. done all the workouts. I, I felt good. I was excited. The race, race got started, and, and you know, this is where the, the Run, Run, Live podcast is. Like, I, I emailed Chris this. I said, you know, you were in my head this whole race. It's like, you know, let the race kind of come to you, spin up the hills, keep it under control until mile 20, and then the race begins, you know, and then, you know, don't go out too fast or, you know, the different strategies of going out. Yeah. So I, I had a lot of that in my head. So all these, it was, it was, I didn't have the run, run, live on the headphones, but I had it in my head, all the things I had heard over and over and over again. I saw the 315 pace group, and I wanted to run faster than the 315, but I thought, okay, I'm going to run with the 315 pace group to start out just to keep me in check because I know I have a problem going out too fast. Um, so I ran with them the first couple of miles, felt good, so bumped it up a bit to a uh, 7.20-ish pace. I came in about 7.20 average pace at the half, knew I was in pretty mm-hmm. good shape. 7.26 would put you at 3.15. Got to mile 16, and it just was feeling, I don't know, oh, man, I was in uh, in that flow state. I've never been on a run <laughs> where I was so focused on the run. I mean, a lot of times when my mind's drifting, I'm thinking about yeah. work. I'm thinking about did this. I was 100% engaged in the run. It was all about the run, my breathing, my form, everything. It was, it was really a cool feeling. You know, at mile 16, it just like, oh man, I just felt alive. It was great. So I stepped it up a little bit. So I clocked about a 7.18 average for the half to the 20 mile point. And then, you know, that's where I really heard Chris. You know, the, 
the race is on, mile 20. You know, dig deep. Um, I, I knew I was at, at a pace right now I could qualify, but I, I wanted to push just a little bit. So in the last 6.2 miles, I averaged a 7.13 pace. So for a final time of wow. 3.11.07, so I have about three minutes. That sounds like points. a dream race. So, so what, what did you end up with? 3.11.07. Wow. So about three minutes, 53 seconds to, to spare. Yeah, that's, to, to that's comfortably inside. That'll, that, that'll get you in the race. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> if not, I'll have to run another one, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, sounds yeah. Like, it sounds like you've got the, the approach nailed now, so... So well done. Now that's that, that's just awesome, you know. And I and I can tell you, it's um, it's it's well worth that effort when you when when you get there. there there's no other race like Boston. It's, it's yeah, an extraordinary I'm thing. Really looking forward to it. Really yeah. looking forward to no, it. No, that's that, that's going to be fab. So we um we probably need to close up in a minute, Josh. So um, I just you know it's, it's a it's a heck of a story. I mean, you know, you you were right down there. People are writing you off left, right, and centre, and you come back. You you found a couple of of people that you know shown you a pretty good path, and then you've you've achieved magnificently, and and you just sound just so thrilled with everything that's that's happened, which is great to hear. What what are, what are the key things? Just before we close off, then you know what are the, the key few points that that you've learned from from this whole process? You want to leave with other people? Okay, yeah. Um, I, well, first of all, I'd say really anything's possible. There's really nothing that can't be achieved if you're willing to allocate resources to it. It's really about prioritization and how badly you want it. Um, I mean, I have a demanding full-time job that requires travel. I have young children, a multitude of other things that demand my time. I'm not to mention a bunch of hardware in my lower back. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, anything anything is possible. And then and then dealing with pain. I think pain pain is manageable and controllable without medication. You just need to teach your brain how to manage it. It's just like any other craft that you want to master. It just requires training. I think this is a big component of that transformational power of endurance sports for me is, uh, you know, training that, that pain management. A big part of, of my journey, and I largely credit running with getting completely off pain medication for the past 18 months. Yeah, it's, that's it's, completely transformed your life, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's also the skill that allowed me to ride that knife edge to run the BQ. I mean, that's, you're going to have some pain. you got to learn how to deal with it. And I think that running teaches you that. A third point would be you really never know where you may find uh, the knowledge to help you on your journey. You know, in the in the past, right. I never understood the appeal of a podcast. I never imagined I would find one that felt like it was made just for me. Uh, and you got to yeah. find inspiration and sage advice anywhere you can. And when you find it, grab hold of it and use it to its full advantage. And then I guess lastly, I'd like to just say that you know, most importantly, positivity is really the answer, regardless of the question or the challenge. I think this is where yeah. these keystone habits come into play. Uh, when you make a change your life, major change in your life for the better, uh, the rest of your life goes along for the ride. You know, the success in one area will give you that confidence and positive outlook for all the other aspects in your life. Wow. Very good. No, it's, um, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to the story, Josh, and, and thanks, for, thanks for telling us. And um, what's next? What are you going to do next? Well, okay, so well, Boston's 2017, so I am looking to sign up. I can't sign up yet because the registration hasn't opened up, but there's a 50-miler <laughs> a, a in um, June I'm thinking about doing, and then either another 50-miler next fall or a 100-miler. I figured I'll keep my base up good and strong. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of a tip on the, on, the, on the longer races. Yeah. 
you can't run them at that pace, Josh. You've got to no, have no. to slow down a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I've been reading a lot on those lately too, and that's that's what they say: start slow. And when you feel like you're going slow, go slower to start. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, well, I wish you the best of luck with everything, and 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 again, thanks so much for taking the time out to tell us the story. It's been great talking to you. Oh, it's been great to be here. Thank you. No problem at all. Cheers, Josh. Cheers. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Time scarcity versus time abundance. Changing the way you think. And giving yourself the power of time. The concept of an abundant mindset versus a scarcity mindset is fairly well known. Perhaps it was first popularized by Stephen Covey. In the Seven Habits book, he said, most people have an attitude of scarcity. They think in terms of there's only so much pie to go around, and if someone else gets a piece of that pie, well, that means there's less for you, less for everybody. And he went on to teach that one should cultivate an attitude of abundance, meaning that by sharing, the pie gets bigger for everyone. This attitude of scarcity bleeds into everything we do. I see it in negotiations every day. I see it in politics. I see it in social interactions. I see it in finance. I see it in business. The dangerous assumption here is that somehow when someone else gets something into their lives, somehow it negatively impacts you. It makes us stingy and mean in our view of the world. It makes us dangerous and caged in our interactions. It turns us in on ourselves as we try to hoard imaginary shortages of things. An attitude of scarcity creates a cage. It is a self-reinforcing thought process that creates the very condition that you fear. And I thought I had figured all this stuff out years ago. I try to view everything as positive and abundant. And what I realized was there was one crucial area where I had retained an attitude of scarcity. Time. I observed my language and was surprised to see just how deeply rooted in my own and in our culture's scarcity attitude towards time, how deeply rooted that is. Do you recognize any of the following phrases? How many times do you say them in a day? Pay attention and see if you can observe yourself and your own time scarcity programming. I don't have time for that. There just isn't enough time. This is such a waste of time. I don't think that's worth my time. It's not a time priority. I need to find the time for that. Do you recognize your own voice? I sure did. Once you recognize that time scarcity attitude, you begin to see manifestations of it everywhere. The marketers certainly know about it. That's why every sale has a deadline and time is always running out and there are only three left at this price. That's that scarcity button that they're pushing. Time scarcity is used to manipulate us. It affects us emotionally too. We feel the scarcity as emotional stress, a feeling of wanting, of never having enough. It can create sadness for all the things we don't have time for, for opportunities lost. It can create jealousy. Why do those jerks get the time to take their family on a cruise? It impacts the way we work, the way we make decisions, and the way we deal with the world. 
An attitude of time scarcity leads us to make decisions that are weighted to the short term. Why save money for the future? Why pass up that donut now? Why not just give them the discount so we can get that deal? It makes no sense. It's like a farmer digging up their seeds because they don't have time to grow crops. By observing myself, I was able to quickly see how time scarcity plays out in my day-to-day conversations. And you can too. Just observe your thoughts and the words you use when it comes to time. See if you have a case of time scarcity. It becomes even more important as we grow older. Now on top of the daily time scarcity soundtrack, we lay the, oh my gosh, I'm getting old and time is really running out voiceover. I don't have much time left. I've only got so many more at-bats. I've wasted my life and missed so many opportunities. These are the time scarcity routines of the baby boomer mind. Paradoxically, you are in a better position as you get older to make use of time. Time is actually more abundant because you have gathered a lifetime worth of raw material to draw from. You are, in reality, much better equipped to make a bigger impact. Now that I've got you thinking, now that I've got you observing how you think about time, what can you do to change that tune? How can you switch to an attitude of time abundance? Well, reality check. You have plenty of time. Time is abundant. The first thing you can do is to call BS on some of your time scarcity self-talk. Do a reality check. Time may be finite, but whether or not it is scarce is up to you. You have 24 hours in a day. If you sleep 8 and work 8, you still get 8 for yourself. That's 40 hours a week, plus another 32 on the weekends for 72 hours a week. That's all yours, free and clear. That's a lot of time. What can I do in 72 hours? Well, I could run about 300 miles. (laughs) Maybe. I could read eh, about 1,500 pages. I could write about 150 pages. That's a book. I could cook some great meals. I could hold some excellent conversations. And I could give 12,960 20-second hugs. There's your reality check. You have an abundance of time. Next thing you can do is to change your self-talk, change your attitude. As you get better at observing yourself, you'll get a mental red flag every time your brain cycles through your to-do list and a little voice says, I just don't have enough time. When you notice this happening, immediately take a deep breath, focus your positive energy, and say instead, I have an abundance of time. That's the simplest and most powerful thing you can do. Repeat after me. I have an abundance of time. See? It's simple. Next, you need to appreciate what you have. You need to practice gratitude. The main symptom of time scarcity is feeling a lack. They got what I wanted. I missed out. Those are all the manifestations of scarcity. If you want to directly counter those thoughts, practice gratitude. Dwell on what you have. Consider what you have accomplished. Your life is full of abundance. Then project that abundance out into the future. Consider everything you have on your to-do list as a gift, an opportunity for abundance. Each one of those things is going to lead to people and experiences that are capable of bringing you growth and self-awareness. And finally, 
The next thing you can do is share freely. When you get to the ninja level of an abundant attitude, you'll find that the more you share your time and energy, the more abundance it creates. And this flips the time scarcity assumption totally on its head and kicks it in the ass. If you don't believe me, look at the people who seem to have an abundance in their lives. You'll see this in action. But don't compare yourself to others because that's a scarcity attitude. The more you share, the more abundance will come back to you. Every time you share, you create a bigger pie and you get to partake in that bigger pie, which is much better than hiding in the corner trying to protect a crust. You have an abundance of time. Yesterday is past, tomorrow is the future, and today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. Cheers. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, folks, that was episode 4-324. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope everyone is having a wonderful Halloween. You know, at our house, we practice satanic rituals year-round, so there's really no novelty to Halloween for us. <laughs> so, um, buddy, the old Wonder Dog is doing awesome. These new supplements, we've got him called Glycoflex from Vetri Science. They really help him from getting sore, right? They're really helping him move around. And so he's out doing two, three runs a week with me. We're back up to doing like 10K in the woods, and he's doing great. The combination of the cold weather and the supplements have made a new man out of him. He's waiting for me right now. After this, we're going to go out in the woods. Uh, running in the trails also makes my ankle stronger, which is the key to surviving the zombie apocalypse. I mean, seriously, doesn't someone always sprain their ankle when they're getting chased by the undead? Weak ankles are the number one cause of being eaten by zombies. So that's why you should trail run. Okay, this is the boring part of the podcast. A little housekeeping. There are two feeds in iTunes for the Run Run Live podcast. I'm going to kill off the old feed at the end of the year. I'm going to repeat this message every episode until then. If you subscribe through FeedBurner, that's going away. So go to Libsyn and search for Run Run Live and subscribe directly to that RSS or go to my website, runrunlive.com and subscribe to that RSS feed. Either way, you'll have a direct pipe to everything I publish, and you can still avoid iTunes. Okay. If you already subscribed through Libsyn or my site directly, then you're all set. Nothing's going to happen. Now, for the rest of you, the majority of you, subscribe through iTunes. If you go into the iTunes store, it's okay, I'll wait, you can go, and type in Run Run Live into the search box in the upper right and hit enter, you'll see there are two Run Run Live podcast shows. You can, you can tell the old one in one of two ways. One is by the picture. The picture is actually fatter. And the other is by the description. The old one says, Welcome to the Run Run Live podcast in the description in the first line. And the new feed says, Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast in the first line. So if you're subscribed to the old one, it's going to go away eventually. Subscribe to the new one. And when, two months from now, you have totally ignored my messages... Well, I guess we can't be friends anymore. Seriously. <laughs> I'm going to put this all into a post with pictures for you. And just go to my website and search for I'm a lazy dumbass who doesn't take direction well. Just kidding. 
there's a search box on my blog. Just search for, I don't know, feed or something, and you should find it. I'll put it up tonight when I post the show and drop a link into the show notes. So that's my update. I've got the two different feeds here. You can you can look at them and see which one's the old one, which one's the new one. And now that I've insulted you thoroughly, the other thing I'm thinking about doing is converting my main site, my Run Run Live site, to a membership site at the end of the year. And I don't know what form it will take. I'm still working on it. Uh, but I'm open to suggestions. And, you know, I was reading through the comments on iTunes today, and I get it. I get it. I get the impression that some of you folks are more invested in the show or as invested in the show as I am. Don't worry. It's all good. We'll figure it out. I'm not in this as a career. More as a way to sweep the cobwebs around in my head with the added benefit of helping someone find something interesting by the side of their path once in a while. And I'll let you off easy this week. Even though our time together is abundant, I find that the things I want to do are more abundant. I'll leave you with a funny story, not the one that I told my sister Jody last night about wandering into the woman's room in the mall after my eye appointment. That's a funny story too, but I may have to wait out the statue of limitations before I can tell it. The funny story is how I found another year in my life that I didn't know I had, which is always good. Here's what happened. I went in to get that colonoscopy, you know, the one they wouldn't give me last year because of my heart. You may remember that episode. But anyhow, the nurse was checking me in, and she said, look over these forms, make sure that all the information is right. And me, being literal, looked over the forms to make sure all the information was right, and I said, the age is wrong. It says here I'm 52. I was born in 62, it's 2015, 5 minus 2 is 3, I'm 53, going on 54. And she looks at the form, and then she gives me that you're a dumbass look that nurses are particularly good at and says, your birthday is in November. So yeah, I had convinced myself that I was going to be 54 this year, so somehow I feel much younger now. I found a whole year. But as you know, I have an abundance of time. I'll see you out there, and apparently for another 12 months. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Maybe it's a stress fever. <laughs>